Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. And we're finally to the cool fact of the day. Looks like a few hundred years ago, a Turkish law made it legal for a woman to divorce her husband if he did not bring home a daily quota of coffee. And to be fair, it's said that at one point in Turkish culture, men would judge a woman's ability to make a good wife based on her ability to brew coffee. So this seems like there was some sort of equality here. Well, you know, you gotta say, coffee, law. I like these laws. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest isn't about coffee, but he's an associate professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, a board-certified internist, and he's very well-known and internationally renowned for his work in integrative gastroenterology and nutrition, a founding member of the American Board of Integrative Medicine, and he's been selected as one of America's top physicians since 2004. And he just came out with the Gut Balance Revolution, and he runs thefoodmd.com. I'm talking about, if you haven't already heard of him, Dr. Gerard Mullen. Dr. Mullen's also lost 100 pounds on his microbiome diet, and this is why I wanted to have him to talk on the show, to talk about gut biomes. So, Gerard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. 
Uh, by the way, I, I didn't ask ahead of time, would you like to be called Dr. Mullen because you're wearing kind of the lab coat sort of set up there, or should I call you Gerard? What do you like on the radio? I don't know. People, they call me Dr. Jerry. Dr. Jerry, there we go. So you normally ask ahead of time, but I didn't, so my bad. That's, a, that's okay. All right, Dr. Jerry. I've been looking a lot at gut balance and the, the microbiome. It's, it's been a major problem for me. I used to weigh 300 pounds. I weigh closer to 200 pounds now, so we've both lost that 100 pounds. And gut balance is, is a core part of it. But what's, what's your take on it? Because you're as studied in that, in that topic as just about anyone can be. What's, what's the connection between the gut and those things like your heart, your brain, and your waist? Like, like, just kind of give me the download there. Well, in a nutshell, to give you a little bit of my story, the journey to yeah. kind of make the connection to the data, is that when I was uh, going to college, and I was about the 293 is what I weighed in, as, as they would say at the championship fights. I weighed 293 when I went to see a doctor for myonucleosis. And at that point in time, I was interested in being a physician, which he found to be laughable. And it was sobering. Uh, and I really what I did was I went to the, the, uh, you know, the, the supermarket and I picked up a little book on fiber. It was all about how fiber was good for you and fiber can help you lose weight. So I would combine that with yogurt different fibrous products and brand, let's say oat brand. And I just started to see the weight come off. Uh, 20 or 30 years later, here wow. we are, I've lost the weight uh, and doing other things that were, you know, microbiome shifting. And the data is really exploded. The connection between the microbiome and virtually every organ system and optimizing and controlling, it's, it's really fascinating, as you mentioned. So if we really want to optimize our health, you know, we've got to start from within. So why was it laughable that you were going to become a doctor back then? Uh, to him, uh, not really clear why, but he said in his own words, looking like that. Uh, <laughs> to, to my mother, is that looking like that? Uh, you know, and then uh, she asked a, you know, a question, you know, because I had a sore throat with the mononucleosis and found it difficult to eat, and he found it to be, gee, that would be therapeutic. Wow. And you could, you could you could use to drop a few pounds. Uh, you know, I mean, a product of the medical school system back then, perhaps, or for whatever reason. Uh, but the words were very penetrating and, and unforgettable. And I, I definitely had motivation to, you know, to succeed once I heard that. Do you think that there's some, uh, I may put you on the spot here, is there some truth to the idea, you know, don't, don't trust a fat physician? <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't don't trust uh, maybe an obese weight loss doctor. There you go. That, that's a fair point because I, I do know some right? some obese physicians, um, and you know if they're going to set my arm, great. If they're going to tell me what to eat. It's like <laughs> if it doesn't work for you. Like, so that's funny. But there are best sellers who do that. There are people who made the best selling lists promoting books who are unfortunately are overweight. But but that's 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 the business. It, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the business, uh, what about detox? It, so when you when you have toxins in the guts, uh, people talk about detox, but there's also like the Betty Ford kind of meaning of, of detox. But so is detox as a Johns Hopkins guy? Is detox a marketing kind of thing, or is this a real thing? You know, it's it's funny. It, it all depends. Uh, it all depends because the term detox is taken pretty negatively in the academic world. Yeah. And I, and I remember giving a lecture to the American Dietetic Association on, on their center stage at one of their conferences about it. 
And there's a lot of evidence for, for principles about detoxification, you know. But the problem is, is that you have the word detox applied and people do pretty crazy things and say they're detoxing. Uh, and it may not be too healthy for them. I mean, with the, the gut is a very robust, very resilient system. And you don't want to starve it. you got to gently uh, re- recultivate it. You don't want to shock it. And unfortunately, with some of these detox approaches, you do yourself more harm than good. Uh, but but there is some truth and some benefit to really start to kind of renew uh, the gut. And that's what I talk about in Gut Balance Revolution is how to do it in, in a phased system, not as a one-time 10-day shock, which which unfortunately is promoted by, by many. So if you were to do, you know, a, a green smoothie cleanse and you only have green smoothies for 10 days or, or something like that, um, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that you're, you're likely devoid of protein and you don't have glutamine to maintain your gut. You'll break down your gut integrity and the bacterial toxins will start to unfortunately penetrate into your blood system, which is pro-inflammatory. So as much as you're getting benefit from having a lot of greens, which are phytonutrients, the the confounding variable what's counterproductive is the fact that you're not supporting your system well enough and even prebiotics for your bacteria to, the good bacteria to grow. Uh, when I was a raw vegan for a, almost a year, I, it, it's hard to remember. It might have been eight months or something like that. This is going back a while. Uh, I I at first experienced benefits that were probably detox related, but then soon started experiencing. Like, well, wait, like there's things going wrong I haven't had go wrong before. I have more allergies than I did before, more food sensitivities, a lot more. My thyroid isn't working the way it used to and sort of ground myself down uh, through well-meaning efforts with stuff that kind of made sense on the surface but just didn't work. Do you see that a lot in integrative medicine where people have have maybe done more harm than good through attempting to detox? Well, what I've seen some people try to do in detoxing is do know, enemas, let's say they've done a lot of uh, high pressure uh, enemas from below, uh, or call hydrotherapy. Yeah. And, you know, I've read and, 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 and heard of a lot of cases of perforation and dissemination, bacteremia, and things like that, where, you know, our bodies really weren't built for that. Uh, and you could certainly, quote unquote, purge yourself orally, uh, and not undergo a potentially harmful line of therapy, but other people swear by it. So other people feel great after, you know, having these cathartics. Uh, but there are downsides that you don't hear about, uh, but they are published. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I, I learned the hard way with, with coffee enemas, which are pretty popular for detox. Uh, you, you have to cool yes. the coffee off first. Like that's, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's an old joke. <laughs> but um, I do get people posting <laughs> about coffee enemas. I'm like, well, I suppose using low toxin coffee is the way to go. And there's there's some evidence for those. But I've also seen people do crazy stuff with colon hydrotherapy that that's probably not medically sound. And and like you're saying, you know, you you can do harm. And and there's supposed to be stuff growing there. If you wash it all out, what are you replacing it with? And and oftentimes in detoxes, it seems like that's not part of it. Um, what though, what's the kind of detox that, that is real? Like, like what are the things you focus on if someone says, you, well, someone does have these lipopolysaccharides permeating from, from their gut, they haven't had enough of the right amino acids, something's not right, how do you guide them to detox? I, I think, and, and 
of a way, and it's a, a line of medicine you might have heard about called functional medicine. Of course, yeah. We, we've had lots of functional medicine practitioners on. There you go. So the line of thinking that I also talk about in the book is, A, is to remove the toxins, right? Remove the things that are causing, quote, unquote, toxicity. So the toxic foods get to be removed. So you remove them from, then, from the diet or from the body is, I guess, the question. Sorry, from the diet. Okay, from the diet. Okay. Love Cut that. off the okay. supply yeah. and, you know, don't purge the body of toxins that may be harboring in the gut. Cut off the supply to pathogens by cutting off some of these bad foods. And, and quote, unquote, the Western diet, the highly glycemic foods, the foods that promote inflammatory fats. And you don't want to have these bad bacteria fester and take over the gut because the gut was meant to really have a harmonious balance of symbiotic bacteria that, that make us thrive. So I'd rather, you know, alter the diet and the diet will help heal the gut and help, help promote the right balance of bacteria. And that in turn will help renew and regenerate, you know, your gut bacteria and your gut lining. So that's... Uh... That's so important when people stop eating, so you stop eating the crap. Um, what about though this idea of calories? There's a lot of people who say, well, you want to lose weight, eat less, work out more. Uh, what, what's your take on that? So I have a patient that I saw earlier this morning who has been gaining weight. He's up in the almost the mid 300s, about 320 or so, and his BMI body mass index is 45. And he has, as he has decreased his calorie intake, caloric intake, and increased his exercise, he's been gaining weight. Oh, that happened and to me. That, <laughs> and that's not unusual. Yeah. You know, because what's happening is that as you're exercising, you're actually, unless you're really doing it the right way, you're burning lean body mass as much as you're burning fat. And fat and lean body mass metabolizes fat. And in fact, as you break down your gut from the lack of protein intake, your gut barrier starts to break down and become more inflammatory. So, and then you're, you know, from a metabolic point of view, if you look at Jonathan Baylor's work. Oh yeah. I mean, you reach this, this set point and your body is smart and it slows down its metabolism as you start to, to quote unquote, lose weight initially, your metabolism slows down to kind of counteract your measures to lose weight. So at some point, if you use this calorie in, calorie out theory, you're gonna have a plateau and actually the weight you're gonna lose is gonna be more muscle, which is more vital to you and actually burns fat. So it, it's uh, very few people find lasting success with that model. It, it's funny because despite the fact that, that you might lose 20 pounds, but you'll gain 30 and then you'll, gain, you'll lose 30, but you'll gain 40 and it, it's, it's brutal. Any fat person who's tried that will tell you this. Like it, it is the rule, not the exception. Um, but you still see tons of usually uh, relatively young uh, people who've never been obese who so just stand up and say, well, here's some studies that say it's always calories in, calories out, and it's all about caloric balance. And, and my experience was I looked around one day when I weighed 300 pounds. I worked out six days a week, an hour and a half a day. And I'm like, wait a minute, all my friends are eating French fries and double cheeseburgers. I'm having the chicken salad with no dressing. I eat less than all of them. I'm bigger than all of them. And I can lift, I can pick up all of my friends and bench press them and I'm still fat. And I just realized, you know what? Like, like I'm tilting at windmills here with this kind of stuff. And, and that was one of my big wake up calls. Why is it, why is that happening? Well, you know, it kind of goes back to the gut. What's happening is that when your bacteria are out of balance, 
they become more efficient at taking in and keeping those calories. So let's say you and I, for example, if, if we had a meal and one of us was heavy again, you know, not what we, we that never happens. Yeah. But if one of us was back when, you know, when I was younger or you were younger um, and our bacteria were out of balance, those bacteria are very smart in trying to keep uh, to metabolize the food that we take and make more efficiently use out of them calorically, absorb the calories, absorb the fat, convert the fiber to really short chain fatty acids, which are really higher in calories than just the carbohydrates. And altogether, we're actually become more efficient at retaining calories if the gut bacteria are out of balance. That's the key. And they found that in, in so many studies. First in animals around 2004, 2005, you can actually transplant the bacteria into the mice without any bacteria and make them fat <laughs> when they're lean. I referenced that in, in the Bulletproof Diet for people who say it's about calories. Like, this is not possible. You take a thin mouse, put poop in him, and he gets to be a fat yeah. mouse on the same food. It means it's not yeah. calories. Like, it's, it's perfect proof in any universe. But people still don't see that. Yeah. And even, uh, even the obese individuals that are human, their bacteria are similarly out of balance as what they found in the mice. So it's true. So, so that, you're talking about yeah. the ratio of Firmicutes to Bacteriodetes, those two species? That is correct. Awesome. That is correct. I was looking through a lot of research trying to figure out why I, I just I, I stumbled across, okay, I'm trying to gain weight. I was trying to disprove the calories thing. I, I was doing between 4,000 and 4,500 calories a day, and I was hoping, oh. but I was doing almost all fat and a little bit of protein right, and right, some veggies. Right, right. And I thought, you know, I'm probably gonna gain like three pounds a week, but the math says I should gain 20 pounds and I'm just gonna write about how this, it just doesn't work. But I felt really good and I actually grew abs. Like the only picture of my abs I ever posted was, was during that time. I saw stretch marks from being fat. I'm not like a, a cover model, by, and you know, I'm a dad. But it was really interesting because when I dug through why would I possibly have lost weight during this time, I came across a study from China where they fed mice uh, butter and coffee, <laughs> and saw a shift in the in the gut biome. I don't know how they did the study, but they, they found a shift of Bacteriodetes and Firmicutes, which the so-called fat people bacteria and thin people bacteria. Um, and so the idea was that, wow, fat affects your gut biome. Have, in your work, have you looked at how fat, or polyphenols in this case, what the, they do to shift those ratios? I, I, you know, it's interesting, not in my particular work, scope of work, but in terms of the research, you're right, the polyphenols clearly are prebiotic. Yes. They will shift you into a more efficient metabolizing bacteria and you will not put as much weight on. So these prebiotic friendly flora definitely help us stay lean. Uh, also, it's interesting with the fats and, and there needs to be more research how the different types of fats promote yeah. the different types of bacteria shifts and metabolism. That's all pretty new at this point in time. But it, I, think, I think it's all fascinating how they, the shifts in these bacteria can really determine the outcome of so many things with weight and diabetes being one of them, but so many different illnesses, even Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and all these things today are really relating back to the, the gut microbiome. If someone came to you today and said, I have Alzheimer's disease, uh, what should I do to change my gut biome so I can maybe live longer or have better brain function? Would you feel confident at least pointing them in a certain direction without say, without being prescriptive? Do we know enough to at least say this is a wise move, even if we don't know it's going to fix things? Well, we knew a few things uh, that are associated with, uh, let's say, 
arresting and or promoting the onset of senile dementia, right? We know lack of sleep facilitates this development. A poor diet, a Western diet, a pro-inflammatory diet. Believe it or not, the number of hours watching television and being sanitary, uh, but also the, the gut microbiome. Uh, there's many studies showing that, again, you, you have more of these fat-forming bugs. Uh, these are pr more pro-inflammatory. These, again, will be, uh, you know, uh, risk factors for developing disease. So it's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of data collectively look at a lifestyle uh, that put us more in a chronic disease mode, and it's how we've treated, poorly treated the gut microbiome, this, this forgotten organ, uh, that is part of the story. Would you tell them take a probiotic? Or would you tell them take prebiotics? Would you tell them, you know, like, like I, I know you're, I'm not asking for, for any, uh, for you to recommend any brand unless you feel comfortable with that, but, uh, or a species or something, or, or do we just not know enough to do that? Like, like would you tell them eat more fat? Would you tell them eat less fat? Would you tell them, you know, obviously no artificial sweeteners, I'm guessing, but just kind of like, like what, what, give me the directional thing, not the perfect prescription thing. You know what I mean? I like your question. Uh, very open-ended. Um, I'm going to go in a couple of directions okay. <laughs> with, with your permission. I mean, you but yeah, please, please do. It up. Please do. All right. First, let's talk about probiotics versus probiotic foods or prebiotic foods, right? You know, I'm a believer at, at, at you know, my, my website being the, the foodmd.com really talks yeah. about food is medicine. The old saying by Hippocrates, food is medicine, medicine is food. Um, probiotics, I think from a research point of view, when they're pure and they're quantitated, really demonstrate the fact that if these good gut bacteria have a powerful effect. Um, but in real life, um, if you look at the different studies, one by a consumer's lab mm -hmm. that showed only eight out of 25 probiotics that they tested really had the number of viable bacteria that, you know, that, that they said they did on the label. Right. New York State Attorney General uh, coming in and looking at various different supplements which are not labeled appropriately. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, probiotics theoretically could be very helpful in the studies and the different conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and even now some in obesity and IBS show benefit. But these are in the research mode when we know that they're pure. The life is like a box of chocolates as far as gump would stay, right? And, and probiotics is the same. You go to your store and you pick out this bottle. You don't know really if it's, it's reliable enough to, to really say that this is going to help me. But food's a different story or fermented foods, the kefir, even the ones that are on the shelves are, are pretty robust. I mean, really? not always the yogurts. Yeah, I, the, key, the kefirs are I, I guess, at hundreds of billions of bacteria per serving, especially if you make it yourself. Well, well it, I was actually about to say like, life is like a box of sauerkraut because you never know what you're going to get because you're, <laughs> you're using you know wild species, like whatever was on there growing, and, and you're sort of hoping that you didn't get the high histamine formers, and you're hoping you got the right ratio of lactic acid bacteria versus the other ones, and was the temperature and time and, and light uh, exposure, right? Because I've made buckets of sauerkraut that absolutely just knock me on my ass, and I'm sort of like, okay, so fermented foods, great if they're fermented with the right species. And and that's been like kind of a challenge. And a lot of people who post on the Bulletproof forums are like, well, you know, I, I like fermented foods, but some of them really don't work. And I don't I don't feel good when I eat them, but I eat them anyway. What's going on there? You know, like everybody's guts are different. Yeah. Right. If you have what they call leaky gut and a lot of the academic docs hate that term, but it really means is that your gut barrier is weak yeah. and your defenses are impaired. 
and that certain, let's say, antigens and bacterial toxins have more free access to your bloodstream, is that even the good bacteria on these probiotic foods that we just talked about that are pretty potent, mm -hmm. you will find that they will, will also cause reactions because some of them and their byproducts may be permeable. So that's what could be going on in many of those people. And I, and I see that in my practice as well, even with probiotics at high doses. Do you recommend resistant starch as, as one of the things you might take with prebiotics? I, I, there's a big kind of debate. Uh, I, I mentioned this briefly in, in my book at, as, as well, but it's still a debate about should you be taking like corn starch and other starches that sort of get into the gut to feed bacteria, but may have other problems. Where, where, where do you land on that spectrum? Not that I'm a fan of cornstarch um, in particular, well, yeah. I guess if it's GMO, oh, yeah, uh, genetically modified, yeah, yeah. But, you know, my, I think there's a number of ways by which we can boost the immunity and the microbiome together with, as you just mentioned, um, certainly arabinogalactans and prebiotic foods, you know, the artichokes and, and all kinds of fruits and vegetables. These all are good boosters for the bacteria. But people have different intolerances, and there's a whole group in dietetics of foods called FODMAPs. I don't know if you've had that on your show. Yeah, we've talked about FODMAPs, for sure. Yeah, these are highly fermentable mm -hmm. foods, which can cause gas bloating and, and diarrhea because they're, they're high in osmolarity in some people. So there are foods with other, let's say, functionalities that may cause symptoms in people. And the idea is it'll go low and go slow when you start introducing new foods. Don't drink a whole quart of kefir and expect to feel wonderful. Um, some people will have uh, you know, adverse reactions. I, I dug in on this because I'm a geek and uh, I was really trying to figure this out. And it, it turns out that when you're doing yogurt and dairy, if you get lactobacillus bulgaricus, and I, I know you're, you're a super expert on this stuff, but I also know that no expert I know has memorized all the different species. So if this uh, is just a bad question. You just need to tell me, like, like that's not the right question. I, I respect that greatly. But right. like, there's Bul Bulgaricus and two other lactobacillus species, including lactobacillus casei. These are like the most common yogurt ones. They form histamine in the gut. So if you're someone who has allergies, you might even be taking antihistamines, and then you take yogurt, then you start making more histamine than you need already. Uh, and I think this might be why some people don't do well on yogurt, but if they can switch to lactobacillus plantarum, which is something that breaks down histamine, it works. And so in my own gut, I worked on getting a balance to reduce histamine sensitivity, and I'm not very sensitive to histamine. Like soy sauce doesn't knock me out anymore. That's a high histamine food, but it did at one time. Do you get to that level with patients? Do you see people who are that sensitive, or am I just like a delicate flower here? <laughs> no, there are people who have histamine reactions, uh, clearly, and you need to avoid foods that are high in histamine. And even sometimes there is dietary supplements um, that actually have the enzyme which facilitate the breakdown of histamine, uh, which people improve on. Food sensitivities is a whole area with multiple mechanisms and gray science that is very challenging to yeah. deal with. I personally have kind of shifted away in my practice from that as I see more and more people in functional medicine and more immunologists kind of take that subject head on yeah but it's it's a it's a, it there's a clear connection and the gut and the gut microbiome appears also through the immune system be playing a role in that as well cool what about uh what about artificial sweeteners things like splenda mm. or or aspartame and mm. uh, acyl sulfame potassium there's so many people who are who've heard the 
carbs are bad for you. And so then they say, well, you know, I'm just going to add this little packet of, of whatever artificial stuff to my, my bulletproof coffee or to, you know, my cheesecake, <laughs> whatever it is they're eating. And, uh, and they think it's going to benefit them because it has less calories in it. What, what is your, like, like, what's your take on it? What did you write about that in the gut balance revolution? Well, it's an interesting question because back, I believe it was 2008, uh, for the Thanksgiving special, uh, I was interviewed by um, CBS here mm-hmm. because saccharin was discovered at Hopkins, and they wanted <laughs> know to know. That. And they wanted to know it was for their Thanksgiving special. They want to talk about sweeteners and artificial sweeteners just for one or two minutes. And they interviewed me for like an hour, and I had all the papers, and it was very compelling. And they felt it was too good just for that segment. It got filed and never really got used again. And plus, the, the lady who did the interview wound up. Now she's on Al Jazeera, but but she uh, she, she left CBS, so therefore got canned. But it, you know, it, it kind of led my mind into really doing research on this. And what I've discovered over the years, and particularly over the last year, is that there's a clear link between the ingestion of these, let's say, these NutraSweets, the, these these you know chameleon sweeteners, and the onset of diabetes. Yeah. And the study that came out in February clearly showed that the linkage was is that these artificial sweeteners destroy your gut microbiome. And through that, uh, promote the onset of diabetes. So here we are recommending to people to cut down on your, your sugar intake and substitute with artificial sweeteners, yet we're promoting diabetes because we're actually destroying your gut microbiome. It's, it's really uh, eye-opening. Uh, one of the things that just drives me nuts is, is I, I went through this when I weighed uh, when I weighed a lot. I said, "All right, I'm I'm gonna." I discovered some Atkins kind of stuff in the the early '90s, and I'm like, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this." But I of course used a lot of NutraSweet, and then one day I figured out that the stuff made me completely pass out because it causes blood sugar swings, and and I was basically drooling on myself from NutraSweet. So I finally got myself off that, which which took a while. But then I switched to some other harmful sweetener, and I ended up going on acyl sulfame potassium, which is, all of these are messing with my gut biome, and I didn't know, but acyl sulfame potassium also causes benign nodules to grow on your thyroid, which I got. And it's like, wow. you know, that's probably eight years of switching from one artificial sweetener to another because I believe that I had to, like, cut calories or cut sugar. And, well, you do need to cut sugar, but you need to not replace it with crappy sweeteners. And if that message just got to a broader number of people, it seems like a few companies wouldn't benefit very much from that, like big chemical companies. But, like, the national healthcare costs would go down, like, by a measurable percentage, maybe double digit. Am I overstating that? No, because soda consumptions of all types are really hazardous for your health and clearly have been linked to, to obesity and diabetes, especially in children. And so carbonated beverages in general really make us uh, acidemic to a very small degree or, or lower our blood pH. And that's going to leach our bones of, of minerals by being acidemic. So that is one thing that all carbonated beverages do. So you don't want to have too much of them anyway, whether they got sugar in it or not. So, so even so like, they, like sparkling mineral water? Unfortunately, if it's carbonated, if not if it's, you know, if it's naturally, you know, has gas in it, you know, but when you, you start pumping uh, bicarbonate in it, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to have its, its carbonic acid. I mean, look in, look in Coca-Cola, it's phosphoric acid plus it's carbonic acid. And, and if, if for those uh, who, you know, you, you could put on a, a car 
and you'll see the paint strip right off. So is, it's very acid. It's very acidic. Isn't that the same acid though that we get from breathing carbon dioxide? Like, like, and as soon as it's in the yeah, body, but, then it makes you absorb more oxygen. Right, but but you have buffers in your body to keep your pH neutral. Right. Right. You have protein buffers, but if you start to go too low, you where do you get it from? You get it from your bone. Or you get it from you know? oxygen. I I I want to do more research on this your one. Bone. I'm yeah. I'm definitely familiar with the phosphoric acid. It's one of the reasons to not do soda. But I've never, I dug in on this because I had a couple clients who felt weak after drinking in mixed martial arts. They felt weak after drinking yeah. sparkling water. Uh, but I have other people like me, especially when I fly, if I drink it, it does amazing things for me. Like, like I, my brain works much better when I drink bubbly water. And I think it has to do with oxygen uptake, but I don't have full evidence. So you've inspired me to, to, dig, to dig in on that one. Do you, I mean, is this something that you've done a lot of research on? Like, can I... Can I hit you up offline about that, or is it, it something that I should just go out and look at? We could talk about it offline. I've done some posts on it. Okay, I'll check out your posts. I, I have, I have, a, I have a brother who, uh, unfortunately, he he drinks nothing but seltzer, and I, and I and I worry about him. So I send him a little material once in a while, uh, just to kind of tickle his interest. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, Pellegrino is a great thing, and I order it when I go out. But I wouldn't take a whole case and just suck down Pellegrino all day, for so, for example. That is interesting. I, I like it because it's a high sulfate water, even though it's made by Nestle, which does a lot of evil things. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's like, well, what do you do there? But I, I probably drink about a liter to a liter and a half a day, and my system is wow. almost too alkaline, given all the other stuff I eat. Like, I, I flirt with being hyper-alkaline. And wow. And then maybe you can, tol- you can tolerate that, not someone who has a lot of red meat. Well, I have a lot of red meat. I, I had uh, lamb chops for lunch, uh, but I, I don't have a lot of meat. I have moderate protein. Like I think people who eat excessive amounts of protein are just asking to die early. Uh, so, right, right, you know, enough right. protein to rebuild things and keep muscle mass, but not like it's not a good fuel source, right? So, all right, right you, you've really you've piqued my interest on this one. I, I think I think this is uh, due for some more some more research. I'll look at, at what you've written, and uh, I would be sad if I had to drink less uh, less sparkling water. Um, but uh, I, I will remain to be convinced, but I, I, you have me really thinking. Thank you. All right, okay. let's get back to the gut. When you drink right. sparkling water, does it mess with your gut bacteria? That's another big question I do not know the answer to. I don't know, okay. but actually it, a lot of uh, us use it. It's a nice digestive aid because yeah. if, if it's low acidity, mm-hmm. you know, you have that with the meal and you kind of like it. It's a digestive booster. Yeah, it, it makes me feel good for sure when when I drink. Yeah. Like, you kind of crave it. I when I'm out, I I get I, you know I just mentioned the brand, but I yeah. I have sparkling water when I'm out. Yeah, it's uh, uh it's I, I got a lot of flack because I recommend San Pellegrino because I, Dr. Stephanie, oh, you know, Dr. Stephanie Senef came on. We talked about sulfate. There's only one mineral water that has high sulfate levels in it, and that's it. Like so, okay. I don't. I, I anyone who knows my work knows I don't really stand for big companies doing bad things. At the same time, it's like you had to drink yeah. something, and tap water was really a bad idea. So, <laughs> yeah. I got you. I got you. I got you. So now let's say that that uh, one of our listeners today, they're probably sitting at work. Uh, listening to this, and they're going, all right, so these guys are talking about sparkling water, gut biome, sweeteners are bad, and all right, they got the message. And they're, <laughs> and they're like, okay, but I know I have bacteria in my gut, and I know I probably have the wrong ones, or the bad ones, or, the, or you know, there's a reason my pants are, have to be this big, so maybe I have the bad bacteria. What do I do right now in order to give me thin people bacteria, for lack of a more nuanced way of asking the question? So the way I do it, and I recommend that, that people do it, is like a three R approach is, is first we want to, you appreciate this reboot, right? 
if, if you got like a, a malfunctioning computer, we all have them on occasions. Uh, we want to reboot them. We want to reset the, the body metabolism, right? And to do that, as we had discussed about quote unquote detox, mm-hmm. is we want to really reset the metabolism by going on a more ketogenic diet, <laughs> yep. right? You're, something you're very yeah. We, with. we agree on that one, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. No. Yeah. And and at the same time, though, we want to cut off. The really the, the bad carbs and the bad inflammatory fats so the, the bad bacteria don't proliferate. So once you it's 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 like you have a garden and you want to weed out some of the bad bacteria, right? And you want to then recultivate and refertilize and then you start to replant or you start to rebalance and we put in the good bacteria and the fertilizer for them in the second phase. And that's what the good pre and pro- probiotic foods that we've been alluding to final phase is maintenance, and I think you really like this, is that there's been studies on Mediterranean, a lot of studies on Mediterranean diet with uh, preventing Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease, but also to sustain weight loss. And there is a study that that I I cite in the book that clearly shows that if you alternate the ketogenic diet with the Mediterranean (laughs) diet, that's the best for sustaining weight loss. The cyclical ketosis thing, uh, it, it works. So that's okay. what we're looking at in, in the program, and, and and people swear by it rather than swear at it. Um, and I'm getting a lot of good feedback. You can look on Amazon. You can look on my Facebook. Um, I'm very very thrilled that uh, that this is really working out for a lot of people. How long do you recommend people stay in ketosis before they switch to Mediterranean, where they'll eat enough things to be out of ketosis? Well, it's interesting because you got another phase in between. You got you got really when people go and they start refeeding. Uh, it depends on how much weight you want to lose. And I think that's what it's, that's where it becomes more individualized. Generally, if you want to lose maybe 10, 20 pounds, you're only going to be in it for a month or two before you switch over. And then you're going to find you're going to still lose weight yeah. because you're on, you're really cultivated this new bacteria. And now you're continuing to foster it because the Mediterranean diet also has fermented foods, right? You got yogurt and cheeses and all kinds of vegetables and fruits in the Mediterranean diet. So it depends when you really want to plateau. What happens if you stay in ketosis for months and months on end without breaking it? You're going to feel less hungry. That's for sure. You're going to lose weight. Uh, you know, for some people who already have kidney failure, uh, you know, that, that's where you really want to be careful. Yeah, that, right? that's with, a corner case. But that's otherwise, I don't really see too much of a downside. In fact, there's, there's potential therapeutic benefit with cancer. Oh, yeah. Right? There have been studies on the, the ketogenic diet. Dominic Agostino's come on the show. We, we talked about that a little bit. Um, so you're familiar with that. I, I am, yeah. but just for listeners to keep going, I was just saying, I was guessing that you were referencing his work, and, and for people who are listening, they would like to hear that episode. Yeah, sure, sure. So, so you're saying epilepsy and cancer. The the reason what what I'm kind of digging for there is, in the course of research uh, for for my book, I did about three months of extreme ketosis. I ate one serving of green vegetables a day, and the rest wow. the rest was fat and protein. And I was trying to sort of replicate the Eskimo diet, lots of krill oil and things like that, um, lots of uh, lots of butter, like anything I could do to get the calories in because I was trying to do a high calorie, high fat kind of thing. Wow. And I, towards the end of that three months, my sleep monitor showed I was waking up 12 times a night without being aware of it. I never felt rested. My eyes were constantly dry. My sinuses were constantly dry. 
Huh. And my and I, I got food allergies to some of my favorite foods, which sucked. And I've I've just about eliminated those uh, now a couple of years later. But what I think happened was that I was so low on carbs that uh, I couldn't make mucus. I didn't have a mucus lining for my stomach. I gave myself leaky gut. I couldn't make tears to keep my eyes and and mucus to keep my sinuses moist because I was just so into ketosis and so devoid of carbs. And I've seen other people who are in ketosis for long periods of time, particularly women, you know, they, they lose their period, they stop menstruating, and it, they can have adrenal issues. But on the other hand, there's guys like Jimmy Moore, who's, who's a good friend, yeah, and like he, yeah. he's, he'll be in ketosis for like 200 years, and he'll probably live that long. And, and so I think there's some individual variation there, but because you see patients, and, and I clearly don't, I'm not a doctor, uh, I'm a hacker. <laughs> so, um, what like what spectrum do you see there? Like, like how how much ketosis is enough? Uh, like, what's your nuanced? You know, I, I see patients answer to that. I, you know, I I haven't seen a lot of people on very long term ketosis, okay. and to the extreme amount that you're talking about, uh, people generally try to at least they get under 50 grams of carbs today uh, a day, and some feel a little tired at the beginning. Um, and some feel very energized. I mean, I see uh, you know, people have different reactions to it, and I think you're right. I think it all depends on the resilience of your microbiome, whether you have a leaky gut or not. There's a lot of factors underlying health on how you react to that you know, ketogenic diet. I think that plays a factor as well, which is hard to, to have in a denominator. Sorry about that. Uh, I can't control the calls in. <laughs> don't worry about it. You're you're in an actual medical office, and for people watching, you can tell you're you know you're there uh, you're there at work. And uh, for, pe- for people listening, now you know he's in his office. Uh, there you go. And I appreciate you taking time out of your day for it. That's cool. Now, let's see. You you've written some other things about superfoods for weight loss. Yes. What are those? I mean, superfoods are one of those marketing labels. Like I've probably seen white flour labeled as superfood uh, at this point. But what what are the ones that that are real superfoods that, that you recommend? You know, it's funny and and keep you know referring to the book is that in each phase I have ten superfoods mm-hmm. uh, for each phase. In other words, blueberries, which are high again, these are high in polyphenols. They're prebiotic. Uh, they're antioxidant. Uh, cinnamon. Uh, which you can actually flavor your coffee with, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. uh, which is which which is really one of the highest concentrated antioxidant foods that that are available, particularly spices, and also regulates blood sugar. So these are the kind of things that I talk about. Uh, coffee is one of the superfoods. We, we right? definitely agree on that one. <laughs> ah, I knew that would get your interest. So I, I talk all about coffee and, and, and the diabetes, cardiovascular disease, thermogenesis, you know, different metabolism. Uh, strangely enough, gallbladder disease is lowered with coffee and liver disease is lowered with coffee. So there's a number or you could have a whole show you probably have on the medical benefits of coffee. You know, I'd, I'd love it's to have a, my superfoods. I, I would love to have a show on that. But uh, according to the way things are in the U.S., um, if I ran a show on that, I'd be making medical claims for my own product. So I, there's actually like sort of a, a legal gap. Really? Yeah, there's, there's, I'm not even allowed to link to huh. some of the positive research about coffee. Um, it's probably stuff that you wrote about in your book. I can talk about human performance in coffee, but if I want to talk about the real big gun stuff that coffee does, not huh. not allowed. And it, it's kind of frustrating as a, someone who's, you know, I'm here to help. <laughs> I, just, I just want to link to the studies, but it, it's kind of a, a conundrum. That's strange. 
freedom of speech. Um, yeah, even your guest, you can't. Oh, have no, my, it, like, my guest can talk like, about it, but I, yeah, like I yeah. Just did, no, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's fine if you do, but I wasn't expecting you, you to on this. Oh. But yeah, if if I if I went out and did that, I would be breaking some regulations there. And in fact, one of my one of my consultants said, "Oh, oh no, you you're in the era of controlled speech and not free speech." And I was like, <laughs> "What? Like, what world do I live in here?" Uh, so yeah, sometimes I sometimes like I'd really like to tell people that about coffee, but you know, someone else will tell them that. So thanks for putting uh, all of that in your book. I appreciate it. <laughs> so I just did. I just did. Yeah, yeah. And I got a nice blog on it, right? That that I believe you've seen on my website, all about the the coffee. Yeah. And it's benefits. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and I love what you said, actually. I was going to ask you about it, but um, you were talking oh. about we should see a randomized trial of Bulletproof Coffee as a breakfast beverage. I'm, I'm actually interested in doing that. So I'm looking to to fund some research on a, a couple of different things I do. There's some mitochondrial enhancement stuff that's really important. That, that's a part of what makes me tick every day. And I, so I'm, I'm getting to the stage where I can, uh, I can afford to start funding research like that. I just need to find who can help me with that. So I, I think it's worth doing. Maybe hook up with Ubiome and and see. I have, I had not enough data, but I did send my poop in. Uh, we helped Ubiome get their funding at the first Bulletproof Biohacking Conference about three years ago, and so I, I had a free sample. And my my one of my six theories about why Bulletproof Coffee does weird stuff was this this ratio of bacteriodides to firmicutes. So I only had two right. samples from uh, one of the other Bulletproof guys and, and me. And just not enough to put in my book, but the samples did show uh, lowered firmicutes and higher bacteriodides, which you know is is what you expect for a microbiome effect from that beverage. Like the hypothesis and the animal studies say it, and we saw it in two people, but that wasn't enough to make a chapter in a book. But I I would love to like just know for sure because maybe it has nothing to do with that, but I do know that it kind of works dramatically, and you know it, it's frustrating to have a bunch of of hypotheses about why something works when you know it works, but to not know for sure which one or which ones are the ones that have big effects versus no effects. And you know that, that's just a big knot of knowledge to untangle, but I think it's worth understanding. Uh, I agree, I agree. Did you do any particular um, it, it sort of randomized things in, for your book or were you mostly looking at clinical experience? Um, like did you put together a trial or anything? No, what I what I did uh, was really organize the data, and I had a hard time keeping up. Quite honestly, I drove my editors crazy at Rodale uh, with, with with production deadlines, and I was always up. The the, the data just explodes almost yeah. weekly. Yeah. Uh, about the connection, the biome, the foods, and outcome studies, uh, just like you're you're alluding to. Yeah, Rodale's a good publisher for that. They also published uh, the Bulletproof Diet, so. Yes, that's right. That's right. A lot of people listening probably wouldn't right. wouldn't understand how impactful it is to to work with someone who's who helps you get the knowledge out there. Some publishers are just like like you know turn the turn the crank and and make a buck, and others are really kind of committed to health. And so I I, I was a virgin author. I really didn't know what the heck I was doing. And uh, mm-hmm. man, um, I I was grateful that I was able to include some last minute stuff because you're like, oh my god, here's a study that what I thought was there mm-hmm. didn't happen. Um, and literally, sometimes it was an hour before the deadline when I would send it in. I'm, I'm guessing you were the same way. <laughs> yeah, one it was like uh, midnight plus eight minutes, and it was due at midnight. And it was yeah, it was you know crazy stuff as you can imagine. So, all right, I have a confession to make. When when I was doing one of the final big editing runs for several days in a row, I slept two hours a night. I basically stayed up till seven a.m., slept from seven to nine, uh, woke up, cranked through. I was using all sorts of interesting biohacking technologies, um, 
I was using um, uh, colored light for mitochondrial enhancement, and basically I pulled out all the stops. I was in a flow state almost the entire time, and, and I wrote some fan, like tens of thousands of new words that needed to be added. Um, but it's kind of biologically expensive, so I was taking adrenals and whatnot. You had to have lost out on some sleep when you were writing your book. There's, there's no question. It, it's uh, it's like having a baby. No question. So there's no question. What did you do? to stay resilient while you're writing your book. Like this, this is the stuff no one ever talks about. Like, like I'm sure everyone wants to know that because everyone misses out on sleep when they have a big project. You know, this was a, it was a long, long project and I had a lot going on with work and everything else. So what I found, unfortunately, I found that the, on the weekends, weekends had some sanctity. I always had to have recovery sleep. Um, and that's when I was at my highest functioning for the book recovery sleep and I would I would just work strictly on the book uh, and and that's that those are my weekends for quite some time for over a year with with you know minor holidays and family things but you know during the week I, I my sleep was more was also uh, very sacred because I'm taking care of patients so I make sure yeah. I had enough sleep during the week and on the weekends is when I really compensated um, you know, and, and stayed up late and so on and so forth. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a little bit of a, you know, a, a balancing act with, with sleep. Did you take any specific uh, supplements or in, anything like that or change your food at all? Oh, um, I was, I put myself on my program uh, just for the sake of it uh, more than once. Uh, particularly after holidays, you put on five pounds, I, I lose it almost, you know, effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, yes. Uh, you know, I, I also, I found myself really heavily and ever since then on, on salmon, uh, yeah. really heavy in my diet because basically one of my, my dishes is Jerry's salmon salad, which actually became a dish at this restaurant that I talk about in the book. And since then just about I wouldn't say every day, but close to it. I, I definitely have fish, uh, and I found myself even more vital and more functional. So I think that was one of the key, you know, one of the key changes. And omega threes, obviously, I did, you know, omega three. So I'm really on a high omega three diet uh, at this point. Do you ever worry about being so high on omega threes that your cell membrane ratios kind of get shifted negatively? You know, I'd have to test that out. Um, I really have to test it out because you want to have a full spectrum of essential fatty acids. I also really, you know, I do quite a bit of olive oil as another fat. So you probably get some omega-6s there. I, and some dairy, and some okay. dairy in the form of yogurt. So I, I do have balance, but I try to keep the omega-3s really cranking. It's a good idea, and there's there's some people out there who, you know, if you have enough DHA, you can, you know, walk through lava and you'll be fine. And, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's like, well, DHA for the mitochondria is good, but but too much DHA for the outer cell membrane seems like it can it can actually disrupt things. And there was a time when I got my ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, and for people listening, this is a bit geeky, but omega-6s are pro-inflammatory, but you need some in your cells, and omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, and those are the good ones. But I got my ratio down to uh, 1.28 to 1, and the anti-aging guys recommend 4 to 1, and if you're, you eat an American normal diet, your ratios are 40 to 1 with more inflammation and very little anti-inflammatory. So I went so far into anti-inflammation that I was probably the second lowest reading that I've ever seen. Um, the lowest reading, by the way, is uh, Dr. Larry Smarr from UC San Diego, who's another biohacker who looks at gut biome. I'm sure you must be familiar with his work, right? 
I've heard of him. So he, his ratio is one to one. I'm like, darn it, you beat me. But, wow. but uh, so th- th- it may not be healthy to go that low. And I find most people can't get that low unless they're doing pretty unusual uh, dieting, things like that. But that, that's one of those concerns that I'm starting to ask experts like you, because I think high omega-3 is good. Crazy high omega-3 maybe isn't so good, but we, I don't think we know where crazy high is yet. So that, that's one of those interesting questions. Um, and does omega-3 affect your gut biome is the other big question. Do you, do you know anything about that? Recent study shows that it does, wow, that it turns on the, the fat, the fat burning metabolism through the gut. Yes. It's, it's fantastic. And amazing. It, amazing. Is there actually value to going out and doing something like, like a biome genetic analysis of your gut, given that every meal changes your gut bacteria so profoundly? Yeah. I mean, you know, within 24 hours, you can certainly, you know, you can destroy yourself quite quickly on a Western diet and it does take a little time to build it back up, but you're right. It's, it's, but you want to have something that's stable and resilient at the same time. And that takes work, especially in today, today's, you know, everyday living, right? Yeah. Most people eat 50% of meals are eaten outside the home. And, and then you don't know what you're getting at all. Because... Uh, box of chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Box of well, chocolates. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to, to get six months worth of Ubiome kits and then record everything I eat for six months and spend an awful lot of time putting little Q-tips in vials. Uh, but then I'd have to crunch the data and <laughs> that would be too much work. <laughs> like I would collect it, but I would never crunch it because of life. But uh, I'm hoping that we do get some some studies like that. Ubiome is, is really cranking up their game. Um, have you done or do you recommend one sort of genetic test for your gut bacteria or any one particular way that people can quantify their gut bacteria? I, I'm just using them because I know them, but there's American Gut Project and you probably use some clinical stuff that's way better. You know, it's, it's a really good question because the technology came out about eight or so years ago with a company and looking at, uh, you know, like you mentioned, the Firmicutes of Bacteroidetes. And that was kind of the, the obesity index. That was kind of like the you know, and looking at pathogens using PCR. Mm-hmm. When that became kind of new and all the criminology shows started to use DNA <laughs> testing and PCR, so the doctors did it too. And But now as they perfected it, it, the same company looks more at biodiversity, right? I mean, it'll look at pathogens and look at, you know, you know as you mentioned, some of these organisms. But it also biodiversity is key because if you want to live a long, healthy life, you have to have an enhanced biodiversity as we get sick and old, we have a limited biodiversity, antibiotics, limited biodiversity. So there's some companies now that look specifically at what I've just been talking about, the biodiversity, which I think is key, as well as the different species, as you just mentioned with Ubiome. So it's it's sure early days. I feel like it's it's like the homebrew computer club time uh, from when we first invented PCs, but now we're doing it for what's going on in the gut. And it, it's it's so incredibly exciting and there's so much we don't know I, I i'm thankful that you put together what we do know into uh, into the gut balance revolution so people can uh, uh people can basically say here's here's what we know or what we think we know anyway and this is directionally accurate the the things that, that we could do what and there's a question i'm, I'm sort of winding things up because i know that that you're uh, you're in the middle of your work day uh, there's a question that i've asked everyone who's who's been on the show and it's based on your, your knowledge, not just from work, but like your life's path, uh, including, you know, that, that doctor who, who told you about uh, how you weren't going to be a doctor, <laughs> not looking like that, whatever else it was. But given all, all of that knowledge, 
the top three recommendations you'd make for someone who walked in the door and said, you know what, I want to be a better human being. I want to perform better at everything. What should I do? Okay, so there, there is a lot of facets or elements to health, okay? I keep on having the, 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 these R's come up in my head. It's about relax, which means de-stress and, you know, also sleeping. You know, just kind of your body has to be able to unwind. Uh, how we eat our eat. Um, we've been talking about that all, all during this interview is eating better, uh, relaxation, having balance in your life, and building up resilience. And I think those are really the keys to really living a longer and healthy life and also, you know, having a healthy social life because in many studies showing those who are isolated, uh, you know, do much poorly than those who have a really good social network. So you want to have a very healthy social network as, as you go on in life. And I think those are some of the keys that I see come up. Awesome. Thanks. I'm, I'm waiting for the study that shows that having a healthy social network actually means your gut biome makes better stuff because there's probably a connection. Um, it wouldn't surprise there may, me at There all. may be. Yeah. There may be because there, there, there's data about how, at least in animals, caged animals, how they exchange their microbiomes and how you can actually have a lean mice help an obese mice really? uh, get leaner with the right diet. Because they exchange, yeah, they exchange uh, their, their microbiomes to some extent. And there are studies that say if you have fat friends, you're more likely to be fat. And that could be a gut bacteria transfer thing. And I'm not saying don't hang out with fat people. I'm saying when you hang out with fat people, <laughs> help them be thin. It's, it's doable. Like we have the technology. So Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Awesome. Well, thank, thanks for, for your work and thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. And would you tell listeners where they can find your book, say the title again, and give me a URL where you want people to go. The Gut Balance Revolution, they can go to thefoodmd.com where I talk more about myself, my blogs, and give information about the book. And, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all these indie, all these different book sites are at their local bookstore. All right. Uh, Dr. Jerry Mullen, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Have an awesome afternoon. Yeah, you too. My pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, do me a favor. Go out and check out Dr. Jerry's work. Uh, these are people who have spent months and sometimes years or decades pulling together knowledge. And uh, it, it's, it's a really big thing when you decide to write a book because it takes hundreds and, or even thousands of hours and it's actually harder to write the book because you're boiling all this knowledge down of, of all these things, just choosing the most important things to share. It, it's a big act of creation. So if you enjoyed this episode, you learned something from it, you want to learn more, the best way you can say thanks is buy the book and then go out there and, and give it a good review. And that means more to authors like Dr. Jerry and me than you probably know. And while you're at it, I really appreciate it when you go out on iTunes and say, hey, Bulletproof Radio rocks. Give us a good review too on there. That uh, goes a long way. Have an awesome day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.